Let us now return then to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 9 to 15 this evening, having looked at the previous verses last week. This chapter we have divided into four because we would maintain there are four callings in this chapter. Four callings in this chapter and we've dealt with two of them uh, last week. First one we noticed was that God called Israel, verses 1 and 2. And there the prophet was reminding the people of Israel of their privilege, that they were the people of God and he had chosen them. And while he had chosen them, he had overlooked others. And therefore, because they were privileged, they had responsibilities. And God was finding fault with their behavior. And in verses 3 to 8, we notice there that God had called the prophet Amos. And he had a, a difficult task because he was sent primarily to the ten uh, tribes in the northern kingdom called Israel. And he basically had a message of imminent judgment that was going to fall upon God's chosen people because of their sins. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? You see, the God gave messages to Amos. He had a burden. It wasn't his word, it was God's word. And therefore he cries out, who can but prophesy? Because God has given him a word to his people. Well, this evening we're going to look at the remaining verses, uh, 9 to 15. And the title I want to give to our meditation tonight is, The Lord Fighting His People. And please take note of the title, The Lord Fighting His People. Very often we have it, the Lord fighting for his people. Well, this is not the case here. It is the Lord fighting his people. And we have a further two calls that we wish to highlight from these remaining verses. And I do believe that someone highlighted in prayer how uh, these things are unfamiliar to us. And I would totally agree with that. These things that we find in this chapter are difficult for us. We're not familiar with it. But when Amos preached this word to the people, they were familiar with it. Because as we go through the book of Amos, we'll find it said something like this. The land cannot stand his words. That was the verdict upon his preaching upon his prophesying. The, the land cannot bear the words of Amos. And what was the problem? Well, the problem is they understood exactly what Amos was saying. They understood it. Amos was speaking to them and they didn't like it. And usually, friends, that's the problem we have today. We try to evangelize. We try to preach here. We try to preach elsewhere. Some people say, well, I don't understand the reality is, friends, more than likely, they do understand. But what is the problem? They don't like what they hear. And this is the case here. They understood, but they didn't like what Amos was saying. Well, we have two callings then to look at to finish this chapter. 
First of all, verses 9 to 10, God calls witnesses. God calls witnesses. He's about to unleash judgment upon his people. And he calls for Gentiles to look at what he's doing. Publish, verse 9, publish in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who stored up violence and robbery in their places in their palaces. What's the prophet talking about here? Well, he's envisaging a situation where God is calling the Philistines, Ashdod. When you see Ashdod, read Philistines. Who were the Philistines? The Philistines were ancestral enemies of Israel. The enemies of Israel. God is calling them to look at this. And also, in the land of Egypt, He's calling the Egyptians to look at this as well. Who were the Egyptians? The Egyptians were the people that subjected to God's, to God's people to be in slavery for years and years and years. And God, through a mighty act of redemption, brought his people out of Egypt, delivered them, brought them into the promised land, and in the process, destroyed the rulers of Egypt. Now he's calling Egypt, and now he's calling the Philistines, both long-time enemies of his people, and he's asking them to look and to see what is going on in Samaria. That's where the people of Israel were. And behold, the great tumults in the midst thereof. There is uprising, there is disorder, there's, not, there's no peace, there's no harmony in the people of God. See this for yourselves, Gentiles. See what has happened to my people. See the way that I have delivered them and brought them out of bondage and delivered them from their enemies and look at the way they're behaving. And the oppressed in the midst thereof. This is one of the sins of the people that Amos addressed. It was people who were, were rulers the judges, the magistrates, those who were the movers and shakers of the day. They were oppressing the people, the ordinary people. If there was a court case, for instance, the people who had no money, who had no clout, who had no influence, they wouldn't get justice in the courts. No, 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 no. It was the rich, it was the famous, it was those who were living in luxury. They would have the sway of things oppressed in the midst thereof. And he goes on, for they know not to do right. Can you believe it? The people of God, the ones who had the law of Moses, who had the sacrifices, who had the prophets, who had all the privilege and all the blessings that God could lavish upon them, they don't know how to do right. They don't care about the Ten Commandments. They don't care about the ceremonial law. They don't care about anything. They're living in luxury. They've got big houses here, big houses there. They've got plenty of money. They've got plenty of power. It doesn't matter what they do to the poor. 
We don't care. I'm all right, Jack. That's the, that's the mentality. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord God, who stored up violence and robbery in their palaces. That's not so much what they were doing. Oh, they may well have been violent on occasions, but that's not what the prophet's talking about there is. What he's talking about there is, in their palaces and in their homes, where they think they're going to have peace and safety, what are they doing by, by their behavior? They are simply storing up violence and robbery that will come upon them one day. And who's going to bring it upon them? Well, we're going to find that out later on. And that's the way they were. That's God calling the Gentiles. Look at this. See this. Can you believe it? This is how the people of God were behaving. Well, there are lessons for the professing Christian church. And there are lessons for Partick, for us this evening. You know, the world sees us. The world there saw the people of God and how they behaved and how they disregarded the law of God. They were witnesses. God will do nothing but that which is right and that which is just. God is not unjust. He even calls the enemies of his people to see how they behave. And the world, friends, looks upon the Christian. The world looks upon us how we behave, how we conduct ourselves, how we speak. How we interact in the community. The world knows how a Christian should behave. The world might not like it, but the world knows it. And the world can see hypocrisy. And the world can see that if our profession does not match, if our life does not match our profession, there God was calling them as witnesses. And the sins of God's people will be exposed to the world. You know, one of the purposes of God choosing Israel was that they might be a light to the nations. We know Israel failed miserably in this. And they were to be ones who would reach out to others. That by their behavior, they might be used to attract people to come and to worship the one true and the living God. But... No, they failed miserably at this because in many respects they, they became worse than the Gentile nations around them. Can this be said of us, friends? Can this be said of you? Is there anything in your life that distinguishes you from those outside? And don't say you go to the house of God because these people went to the house of God. And we shall look at that in due course. This is serious. Very, very serious. God takes the behavior of his people seriously. He sees. He knows. <clears throat> 
and the world on this occasion was used to destroy a backsliding covenant nation. The Lord, as we've said on other occasions, is one who has many arrows in his quiver. He's got many ways that he can deal with people. He can use the elements, the sun, the moon, the stars. He can use the weather. He can use flies. He can use lice. He can use animals. He's not limited. And he can even use uh, the ungodly heathen in order that they might be his instruments in correcting and chastising his people. Yes, friends, we would even go so far as to say but that the, the devil himself is but a, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a servant, he's bound, he's in chains, he acts according to his nature, but he's under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether he likes it or not, he is a servant carrying out the will of the living God. And what we're meant to learn here from these two verses, friends, is that the church has been created by God. Therefore, the church has a responsibility to live godly. We're not to be found committing the sins of these people. We're not to oppress the poor. We're not to use our power and our influence over those who are not as strong and as mighty as ourselves. We're to be humble. We're to be gentle. We're to be loving. We are to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to follow in his footsteps. What is that text? A bruised reed he shall not break. And a smoking flax he shall not quench. That's talking about the Savior. About the gentleness of the Savior. How he deals with individuals. How he might deal with the backslider. Or how we might deal with the weak believer. Well we have to be exactly the same. We are to love one another. Husbands are to love their wives. As Christ loved the church. What an exhortation to, to husbands. Who can fulfill it? It's only by the grace of God that we can. And wives are, are to be submissive to their, to their own husbands. Now we know how unpopular that is today. But. Well, we're not here to please the world, are we? No, these people were living just like the world. There was no difference. Friends, there must be difference among the people of God. You have been called to holiness. This is what it's talking about. It's reminding us. And the world is watching the church. And friends, will the world come into the church if the church is just like the world? Are we not new creatures in Jesus Christ? Does it not say that to us in 2 Corinthians? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Well, friends, are we new? Is there anything new in your life since you've embraced the Lord Jesus? Or is it just the same old thing? Have we just simply added religion to our lives this is what it was like for them. But Christianity is life-changing. And we would notice, friends, more importantly, 
there is a particular vileness to the sins of those who say they belong to Christ but deny it by their actions. These people, the Gentiles who were called upon to witness the lives and the sins of the people of God, they themselves were worse sinners than the people of Israel. There's no doubt about it. They were not perfect, these Gentile nations, and far from it. But the problem is that God's people should be living differently. And if they're not, their sins are extremely vile, and it's certainly in the sight of God. Oh, God will deal with these, with these Gentiles. Yes, he will. He'll have his day with them. God, God is a God who cannot tolerate sin, and he will not tolerate it. And therefore, we are to make sure that our lives are different. Day by day, different. And these verses also teach the Gentiles something. The heathens, the idolaters. It teaches them something. Because as they were looking on, and as they were seeing the people of God in their sin, in their misery, in their rebellion against the living God, and they were going to know that God was going to punish and judge his people and to such an extent that he was going to take them out of their land and bring them into captivity so that they would never return, they would say to themselves, if they had half an ounce of common sense, they would say, what a God this is. See how he deals with his people. Do you think, he, therefore, he's going to overlook our sins? If he won't overlook the sins of his people whom he has redeemed, who he has taken out of Egypt and done wonderful things for them and planted them in the promised land, if he's going to treat them like that, what's he going to do to those who are not his people and who sin just as badly? It was going to be a, a restraint and an eye-opener to the heathen we don't want to deal with this God. We don't want to fall out with this God. Look what he's going to do. And this is a warning then. It's a warning to the people of God. And it's a warning to the heathen. It's a warning to the people of God that they might repent. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe you need to repent. You need to examine yourself. We'll look at it in our next calling, but you need to look at these things. And certainly if there are unbelievers in our midst and they see that the judgment has fallen upon the, the church of God, and indeed we say it, it has in our day and generation, the judgment of God has fallen upon us. We are powerless and we have no power or effect upon our community. Why? Because we've sinned in the sight of God. Well, unbeliever, if this is the way that God deals with his chosen people, if this is the way that he deals with the, the sinners in his church, what will he do for those who are outside of Christ? You too must repent. You too must come 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the second call we find in the remaining verses, which are difficult for us, but we hope to draw some or paint some light on these verses in order that we might apply them to ourselves. But the second call is God calls for judgment from verses 11 to 15. And we shall maybe go through these verses in order. Verse 11, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land. And he shall bring down the strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Who is the adversary? The adversary is their God. It's God himself. Now God himself is going to raise up the Assyrians. And they're going to come from the north. And they are going to create havoc in Israel. And that happened in B B.C. 722. 722 B.C. The Assyrians came. They ransacked the place took the people captive, they never returned. They never returned. And the Assyrians put into Israel people from other nations that they had captive, put them into Israel, into Israel, and they interbred with those who were left, and they became the Samaritans. And if you know anything about Israel and Samaria, there was a long, long animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it all came about because these people, once they had gone into captivity, their land was empty. The Assyrians put people in it and they interbred with those who remained and they became the Samaritans. And they were not regarded as real Jews. They were a mongrel race. And it was only, we might say, when the gospel came in the book of Acts that there was any kind of reconciliation between the Jews and the Samaritans. But all behind it all, friends, was Almighty God. He had enough and he carried out what he said he would do. And when Amos was proclaiming this, it was in a sense, a note of mercy because God was telling them what he was about to do in the hope that they would repent, but they never did. Verse 12, Then thus saith the Lord, As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. Now this is, on the face of it, a very difficult one for us to try to interpret. But if we go back to Exodus, I think it's Exodus 22, in the law there, there was a provision. If someone was an under-shepherd, and he had the responsibility of looking after sheep that belonged to someone else. If a lion came and took one of the sheep and tore it apart and ate it, the shepherd, the under-shepherd, would go to the carcass 
and take some of the remains of the animal and go to the owner and say, here's the remains of one of your sheep. A lion tore it and ate it. Here's the remains. Now, if he didn't show the remains, he would be liable to pay for that sheep. So it was to save him. The owner would know, well, he's telling the truth. The sheep truly was torn by lion. And here are the remnants. Two legs or a piece of an ear. Well, it's going to be like that for Israel. It's going to be like that for Israel when the Assyrians come. What's going to be left when the Assyrians go through the land and they ravage it? It's going to be like the lion tearing upon the, the lamb. There's going to be nothing but a, a piece of an ear or two legs. There's going to be utter devastation. But it's an interesting comment that's towards the end of the text. Taken out that dwell in Samaria in a corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. Why does he talk about a bed? And why does he talk about a couch? Why is he likening the remains of Israel to a corner of a bed or of a couch? He's highlighting the sins of the people. The sins of the people where they were sensual. They were idolaters. They were lazy. They were idle. They were in their beds and on their couches. It was luxury. Lavish luxury. That's what was engrossing them at that particular time. There's no mention here, friends, of them being found in the temple or in any kind of religious service. There's no talk of them studying the word of God or anything like that. No. Instead, when the Syrians are going to come upon them, they're going to be up to their neck in their sins, idleness, drunkenness, carousing. These are the things that one does in a bed and in a couch. That's what the prophet saw. Now, what is this sin highlighting? Well, this sin is highlighting, friends, there was no personal spirituality among the people at all. Yes, they would go to the house of God. They would go, as we'll look at it later on, they would go, they would have a, a, some kind of religion. They would do their duty, fulfill their duty, but their hearts were not in it. Their hearts were not in it. There was nothing personal in it. It was something that they did. It was a cult almost. And there was no personal spirituality at all. It's going through the motions. It's turning up at 11. And switching off at a quarter past 12. It's coming back here at 6. And then switching off at a quarter past 7. Maybe it's coming to the prayer meeting in the Wednesday and then when it's finished, it's switching off. It's like taking off your Sunday clothes. You hung it up and you hung your Christianity up in the coat hanger. And it's all over. When you're in your home and we're in the shop or office or whatever, you don't take your Christianity with you. There's no personal spirituality. This is what was happening there. 
They were too busy amusing themselves. Too busy having a good time on their bed or on their couch. That's how he describes them. Verse 13, Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts. Well, this is quite simple, friends. We won't take long with this verse. This is just simply universal application. The house of Jacob. He's reminding them again. They have come from Jacob, one of the patriarchs, one with whom God made the covenant, the covenant of grace to bring them into the promised land. He's reminding them again of their wonderful privileges and responsibilities. The house of Jacob, it was universal. This problem ran throughout the whole, from the young to the old. Verse 14, that in that day, that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him. I will also visit the altars of Bethel. Let's just stop there for a moment. Bethel, what does it mean? The house of God. Keep that in your head for a moment. The house of God. You see there altars. Well, Jeroboam was the first one who introduced false worship after the time that Israel split. When Israel split and became Judah and Israel, Jeroboam the first, in order to stop people from going to Jerusalem to worship, he set up an altar in Bethel. The people there could go and offer their sacrifices. Oh, it was still to Jehovah, they thought, but there was golden calves there set up in Bethel. Well, what do we find here? And visit the altars, plural. There's more than one altar. And this is what happens. When false religion begins, it spreads. It's like a cancer. And that's what happened. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off. Again, that's an important thing. We go back to the altar, the true altar that was on in the, in the temple. It had horns upon the altar. What did they signify? They signified mercy. If someone went into the altar and clung to the horns of the altar, they were assured of mercy. On that day when God was going to come with the Assyrians, there would be no mercy. You could hold on to all the horns of all the altars. There was going to be no mercy whatsoever. None. And fall to the ground. Remember, remember what I said about Bethel, the house of God? Look at this now, verse 15. And I will smite the winter house and the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. You see the words there? See the words horse, uh, houses? Bethel, the house of God, winter house, summer house, houses of ivory. Solomon in all his splendor, he had a throne of ivory. He didn't have houses of ivory. These people were loaded down with, with, with their wealth and their prosperity. And they thought that everything was great. They said to themselves, look at us. Look at what we have. We must be blessed, surely. We must be blessed. Not so. Not so. 
It reminds you of the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. This is the words of the Savior to that lukewarm church. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That describes the people of God with all their houses, summer houses, winter houses, houses of ivory, houses all over the place. They're all going to be destroyed. Thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And they didn't realize it. They thought that material blessing. Therefore God is truly blessing them. Judgment was just imminent. They were like the sinner who's on the edge of falling into hell. Exactly the same here. But friends, you notice all these houses, they all fall. The altars at Bethel, God's house there. Ichabod, the glory had departed. That house would fall. The winter house, the summer house, all of them shall fall that day when the, the Assyrians will come. There's a lesson here for us. There's a lesson for our nation here. As someone has said, where religion is powerless, everything is powerless. When the house of God falls, no house can stand. This was the problem. The house of God, Bethel, set up initially a long time ago, it was good. But the glory had departed. And when God's house falls, every house falls. Britain, wake up. Wake up, Britain, when churches are closing and being turned into uh, nightclubs, and when churches are being sold and they've been raised up as mosques, what's happening? In one real sense, the house of God is falling. And what's happening to our nation? The nation is falling. We're under collapse. The foundations are breaking up before us. That's what's happening. God is moving among us. And when Christianity, friends, of course it can never totally fail, but outwardly it's failing in our own midst, in our own city, in our own land, it is failing. It is obvious then when Christianity as we know it has lost its power and vigor and life, then everything else in society will follow. You cannot escape it. That's what happened here. And unless we repent, it will happen. This is the message for the people of God today, here. All their luxury homes, summer homes, winter homes, everything gone. Why? Because the house of God has been neglected. And they were trusting in their wealth, in their homes. We're the people of God. God will not do it. Well, God will do it. 
There's no escape. Well, what about ourselves, friends? The last thing we want is for God to turn to be our enemy. This is what happened to you. Why is the whole church today powerless? Why is it? And we're not going to excuse ourselves from that description because we're in the church. And why is it that Partick is largely powerless today? Is it because God has lost his power? God forbid. Impossible. Is it because the gospel has lost its power? Impossible. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. What's wrong? No. Because we have lost his power. That's the problem. God has not lost his power. We have lost it. The church has lost it. This is what happened to you. They lost it. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The Lord fighting his people. Well, it's time to surrender. It's time to raise the white flag. It's time to look at our lives. It's time to live righteously one with another. It's time to treat each other right in the sight of the Lord. It's time to stand up and to be Christians, true-hearted Christians. That's what's required. For if not, the Lord will fight against his people. Amen. May God bless his word. Let us pray together.